Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this edition of The Literary Life, John Grisham is live at Books and Books in Coral Gables. A great night with a room full of readers basking in the brilliance of a master storyteller. John's new book is The Exchange, and he brings back Mitch McDeer, the hero of the firm. We talk about this and much, much more. Who needs rock stars, right? When you got John Grisham in the house, right? John, thank you for everything you've done for all of us and all of your readers out there. And thank you for coming to Books and Books. We really, really delighted to be here. Uh, we've been trying to get here for several years. COVID intervened. We came down to the book festival four or five years ago. You've periodically been coming down to Miami. And um, what what are your thoughts about Miami? What do you think of it when you just you know, the first thing that comes to mind. Dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> the 72 Dolphins. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> it's an extremely colorful town, rich town, uh, that, you know, has been the setting for a lot of uh, great fiction, stories, crime. Crime always sells. So we, <laughs> we love crime. I got distracted. I saw a first edition of A Time to Kill over here. Would you hold that up, please? Yeah, so those are. Uh, All right. So, seeing it's an autograph to who? Autograph to me? To you? To who? Who's Susan? <laughs> How'd you get the book? She left the book behind, and you got the. So when the book came out, uh, Time to Kill came out in, um, in June of 1989, the publishing company was a small, unknown publishing, brand new uh, startup in New York called Winwood Press. Everybody else had said no. And so we finally got a deal with Winwood. It was not self-published. And they printed um, 5,000 hardback copies of A Time to Kill. And the, the publisher had no money to pay me or anybody else. And they had no money for promotion. So I bought 1,000 copies myself <laughs> and I had it figured I would I'd buy, I could buy them for it, it wholesale sell for retail you know I could make a little money and then I'd it'd jack up the royalties I had it all planned okay <laughs> and so I, they unloaded a thousand copies of a time to kill in my to my little office and they were stacked up all over the office and uh, my, my clients a lot of them couldn't read so I, I just gave them the book <laughs> they sure couldn't afford a novel so I, gave, I was giving the book away and we didn't have a decent bookstore in our town then. 
uh, where Renee and I are from, we had a nice library. And so I went to the librarian, a guy I knew, and I said, hey, uh, I got a novel coming out. And he said, sure, like everybody else. <laughs> I said, let's do a book signing here. If you don't mind, I'll invite everybody. I'm sure the whole town will show up. And um, he said, okay, great. He was excited. We have photographs of our kids. Ty was six and Shay was about three climbing on a thousand copies of A Time to Kill stacked up at the library because they were going to sell out immediately, okay? And so the party starts, a nice crowd shows up, I sign books, and when the party was over, I still owned uh, 882 <laughs> copies of A Time to Kill. And I had an invoice coming due to pay for the damn things, okay? You know, I can, I can actually <laughs> confirm all that because... As a young bookseller, we had been open just a few years, they used to have these regional shows. And there was a regional show in Atlanta, I think. SIBA. Remember yeah, the SIBA yeah. convention? And I'm there, and I'm walking the aisles, and there's this guy standing at a booth behind a stack of his books. And I had left law school to come into this business. And he and I had this long conversation. You don't remember any of it, I'm sure, but about... You know, law school, you said, I think you said to me, you made a good choice, <laughs> is what you said to me at the time. Um, that was, and uh, I remember that, and we bought some copies early on for the store, and now they're going for like $10,000 each, so I should have kept them all, I think, at the time. Well, <laughs> I should have kept them all, too. Um, <laughs> but I had this invoice coming due, so I went back to my librarian, hey, do you have some buddies in other libraries who I can take this show on the road? Uh, and so I spent a couple of months uh, going all over the state, selling books out of the trunk of my car. And the smaller the town you went to, the, the, the more you used, uh, 12 to 15 books is a good day. They, they'd make, the friends would make you know, punch and cookies and ladies show up. So I'd, I'd sell a few books. And it took me uh, like 35 libraries to finally unload uh, a thousand. I, I, kept, I kept 100. They're buried in the backyard. Um, <laughs> With I, a hidden map. I, I, I will actually, in, in, occasionally, I haven't done it in several, I'll buy a copy if somebody wants to sell one, if it's pristine, right. uh, because they're, they're, they're pretty rare. So yeah. they, uh, the going price is around 4000 bucks a copy. And I had a, I, and I had a 1000 in my office, so do the math. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the only fortune I lost practicing law. That, that was a, that was a, so uh, that, was, uh, that was one of my favorite stories from a time to kill. A lot yeah. of adventures. It was also one of the best things I ever did as a writer. I made so many friends throughout the state, the libraries, the bookstores, and we had a lot more bookstores back then. And so when the firm came out 18 months later, I had a lot of friends who were willing to step up and, and buy the book and sell the book. So Yeah, no, and, you've, and you don't forget that because, you know, bookstores have meant a lot to you, but you've given a lot back to bookstores. Talk a little bit about what bookstores have meant to you. Well, when, 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 when the firm came out, um, when A Time to Kill came out, most bookstores said no, because uh, I was unknown. I, I understood that. It still pissed me off, but I, you know. <laughs> um, but there were, uh, you know, there were didn't have time for an unknown writer. There were five stores uh, in four in Mississippi, one in Arkansas, one in Memphis, that said yes, and so they had signings for me, and and we we would sell thirty or forty copies of A Time to Kill, which was a big deal. So when the firm came out, I went back to those five stores. And then it, it, when it exploded, you know, of course, suddenly everybody was calling. And I didn't want to go to a, uh, to a lot of stores and sign a lot of books, so I kept going back to the same five and still go back to the same five. Uh, I, I stopped doing the signings when 
they became really long and tiring and all that. And I, I, it's, it's nice to have a bunch of folks show up at, at a bookstore as opposed to having nobody show up. <laughs> because I've had that. I learned that with the time to kill. Uh, I've had a, two days when I sold no books, and you sit there for two hours and suffer. And, but every writer remembers that. Everybody, everybody can tell a story of going to a bookstore and nobody shows up. And so uh, I've always appreciated the crowds, but the signings got to where they would last 10 or 12 hours, and we would sell a lot of books. And, the, and I was physically, mm -hmm. I, I, and I got real lazy, and I said, I don't have to do this anymore. Mm. So, but I still, I still sign. You still support those stores. You I still sign 2,000 books a year for those stores, yeah. And a lot of those booksellers are a friend of mine, and I was so jealous of them <laughs> <laughs> when I would see those lines out the door and, and all those things. So you've, you've, you've um, come back to certain characters in your work. Uh, what made you come back to uh, Mitch McDeer? Well, it was a, um, just a naked effort to sell books. <laughs> <laughs> As it should be. I told I was on CBS this morning uh, in New York, and I, and I, I made the comment: um, the firm has sold 20 million copies. Wouldn't you write a sequel? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> there could be another one. Um, but no, it's uh, it's a, it's you know I, I I thought for years I would never do sequels, but. Ten years ago, I wrote a book called Sycamore Row, and it was, it was the first time I brought Jake Bergantz back from A Time to Kill. And um, it was a really strong courtroom drama. I really enjoyed the story, so I, I, I did the novel. And we were uh, pleasantly surprised at the popularity <laughs> of Jake uh, because of the book, but also because of the movie. Matthew McConaughey made Jake you know, a really famous person. <laughs> and um, and we, 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 we appreciate, we still appreciate the... Uh, the power of those movies, and so when when Sycamore Row came out, uh, we were pleasantly surprised at the at the reaction. And I said, I'm not going to wait 24 more years to bring Jake back. So I had another story a few years ago, but I didn't have the story for Mitch. And um, a couple things happened a couple years ago. I got a story, uh, a real story based on an international incident that uh, I, I thought was pretty cool. It was, a, it was a case that a, a friend of mine has, ha, still has in Libya, that's intriguing. <laughs> and also, uh, to be perfectly honest, when Tom Cruise came out with Maverick last year, <laughs> and the movie was really good, and it was a huge success, and he still looks 30 years old. <laughs> so I was talking to my wife, Renee, who's right here. I said, uh, you know, he, he, can't, he, he can't pass for 30. He could probably pass for 45. So what if we set the, firm, the, the next book, we didn't have a title then, um, maybe 15 years after the firm, get him away from Memphis and all that story, a whole new story, a whole new setting. And that's how it kind of it came about like that about a cool. year ago. And, and Jean Triplehorn, can she, can she be 15 years older too? I don't know what happened to her. I, mean, <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I, I mean, she's still, she's still doing movies? I don't know. I'm not much of a movie person. Yeah. So, but you, Hal Holbrook's dead. So many of them are dead. Yeah, uh, no. the ones who weren't killed in the firm uh, have, have died off naturally. Also. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so many of them went to prison in the firm, and uh, and so you know that I had to start with all new characters. And Mitch lives in in uh, in New York. He's forty five years old. 
15 years, I mean, he's 41 years old, after the firm. He's, he's an international lawyer in the largest law firm in the world, and he get, travels the world putting out fires for big corporate clients. So he, he winds up in Libya with the case that's so far away from Memphis, Tennessee, and that's what's kind of what I wanted. Yeah, although you do bring him down to Memphis for a little bit. You we have this we kind took of a, fake a nostalgic run back down memory right, lane to Memphis right, in the first right. two chapters, and, um, and I didn't know if it was going to stay in the book. I, I thought the reader might like to go back and have a few uh, moments back in Memphis. And um, so I wrote the first two chapters, and Renee read them, and we said, okay. She said, okay, I, I kind of like that. So I sent the book to New York, and we, did, we decided to keep the, the first, the, the Memphis stuff in there, although it's totally unnecessary. Yeah, although I liked it because it, it gave you a little bit of a faint. You know, you thought, yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe you're going down this road, particularly given all of your writing, so much of your work deals with injustice. And that first part of it is you're, you're, you're sending yeah. him down there yeah. to do a pro bono case. Yeah, he, he's, a, he's a pro bono lawyer. He's, he's, be, he's being assigned to another death penalty case. And Renee read about 10 chapter, ten pages. She said, I am not reading another death penalty case. Okay? <laughs> she said, I'm tired of death row. I'm tired of these stories. And so I won't be writing one for a long time. And that comes through. I've probably the overdone the wrongful conviction stuff. The, you know, I've enjoyed that for a while. Uh, so the next book is going to be the third uh, Camino book. Oh, yes. great, 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 great. Yeah, that's and then And then, ha hate to say, honey, but it's uh, in the fall <laughs> I have my second nonfiction book coming out that's, that's a collection of my, my top ten favorite, if you can call them that, wrongful conviction exoneration stories. Wow. And, uh, yeah. and they're really, cool. they're really uh, ten fantastic stories that are all true, and when you read each one of them, you'll say, this cannot be true. Wow. So, wow. so then, then I'm going to stop. Okay. <laughs> then I, then so I'll stay away from death row. So, so talk about talk about injustice. Where does that come from? Where where did, you know, what is it inside of you that wants to sort of write about injustice that you see in the world of all different kinds? I didn't. I didn't do it for a long. I didn't do it for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I didn't do it until 2006. I'd had like 15 books out. And I um, found this story, a true story, about a guy who just, it was, it was a New York Times obituary. So the guy just died, obviously. And he had been to death row in Oklahoma. Um, a guy, kind of like me, same race, religion, neck of the woods, socioeconomic background. And he had been sent to death row by a small town. Uh, and he came within five days of being executed, completely innocent. And it was a fantastic fantastic story as they all are so I jumped into this world of wrongful convictions un really unknowingly what I was getting into because I'm not a journalist uh, and I, I had to do far too much research but the, the story the innocent man really opened my eyes to the world of wrongful convictions and once you realize that there are thousands of innocent people in prison it's kind of hard to let it go and the book was you know the book was a success and I've gone back to wrongful convictions uh, too many times. <laughs> but it's, it's something I, I'm on the board of the Innocence Project in New York, and we, we, we work to free innocent people all the time. We've freed 400. I'm on the board of the Centurion Ministries in Princeton. We've freed, they've, free, they've freed 70 in 40 years, smaller group. There, there are a lot of innocence groups in the country, one here in Florida, uh, working hard to free 
innocent, completely innocent people. Yeah. And sometimes you have DNA that make it easier, oh, not easy. Sometimes you don't have DNA, which makes it very difficult. But once I got caught up in that world, I realized how many um, terrible prosecutions there are, uh, the many different ways the system can go wrong, the, the curse of, of, of mass incarceration, the unfairness of the death penalty, and all that. So that's been a, a still a, it's still an ongoing process for me. Sometimes it bleeds over into the fiction. Uh, I write two types of books. This is to me is pure entertainment. It's like the firm. There's no, there's no uh, uh, <laughs> socially redeeming message. <laughs> it's just fun, okay? Uh, and the other books are deal. They deal with issues and uh, a lot of issues I've, I've touched on. Uh, even you know environmental destruction and insurance fraud and for-profit law schools. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of uh, bad actors in the world, and it's fun to take an issue and kind of weave a, a story, a compelling page-turning story, and, and and get you to think about an issue maybe you haven't thought about before. Because oftentimes I'm thinking about it for the first time too, and there I have a, I have a long list of issues and stories I want to write about. Probably won't get to them, but uh, I'm not going to retire anytime soon. So. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you heard it here. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the other thing that you've already, you've also done that is, you know, really, I see it when young writers come through and they're inspired by you, and you're always talking up other writers so wonderfully. Talk a little bit about that and, and paying it forward and, you know, inspiring other people. Do you feel a sense of responsibility or are you just, are, are there people that you really love that you want to just put their books in front of other people? We moved to Oxford in 1990. Uh, we got married in Oxford, went to school in Oxford, Ole Miss, and, and lived for 10 years back in our hometown. In 1990, after I sold the film rights and book rights to the firm, I was suddenly a different man. <laughs> I, was, I was no longer a lawyer, no longer a politician, and we moved, moved to Oxford and planned to live there forever. At that time, Willie Morris was still the, um, the uh, creative writing teacher at Ole Miss. He never went to class. Uh, Barry Hannon was teaching there. Larry Brown had just become, you know, big. And uh, Donna Tartt published in 1992. It was a real literary environment. And the bookstore there, still the great bookstore, Square Books, Back then, it, writers toured a whole lot more than today because publishers would pay, you know, for a big tour. That was the way you got out. Before the Internet, you got out and you went to stores and you, you got the interviews and, you, 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 you know, you tried to drum up support. So there were a lot of tours, and you would see it. We met all these writers coming through. And it was a, it was a real uh, literary environment, but it was also they, – they were all helpful. They all wanted to help. And we, they, they, I didn't see any jealousy. They all wanted, we all want each other to do well. And so um, that was a huge influence on me back then. And also after selling, you know, um, a lot of books, it's, it's easier to be great, gracious and, and support other people. You know, th there's no pettiness or jealousy or whatever among writers that I know of, not in my world. Uh, I love to see fiction, popular fiction needs a new superstar every year. And we're always trying to find one. Because uh, I, re I, I read a lot of galleys and advanced reading copies and first novels trying to help, you know, young people, young writers, debut writers uh, get started. So we're always hoping to find the next great one, and so are you. 
you, you read a lot too. You're, we're always looking for somebody new in fiction. Well, and along those lines, you know, we thank you, and I'm sure everyone, everyone in 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 Oxford thanks uh, thanks you guys, you and Renee, for starting that fellowship that you started. Right. And when I think about all the amazing writers that went through that fellowship, you know, Jessamine Ward has a new book out right now, and she's one of the hot young new writers that we can talk about. Yeah. We started uh, 30 years ago, and we've had like 25 writers now. They, they come to Oxford for a year. They, they're supposed to write, uh, live quietly, teach a class, and like behave themselves. And that rarely happens. Okay? It's hard to do in it's Oxford, a, right? It's easy to be distracted <laughs> and knocked off the rails in Oxford, especially around the bookstore. It's and true. so they have a grand time. <laughs> but but also, in, um, last year I was in New Orleans at the book festival, and this uh, young writer walked up and he gave me his, his second novel, and he said, I wrote this in your house in Oxford wow. when I was the visiting writer. And this is how much it means to me. We, we, we built our home in Oxford in 1990, we gave it to Ole Miss about 10 years ago to house the visiting writer. So when they come to town, they stay there. And he had just stayed there and, and finished his first novel. So, you know, that's, that's really pretty that's cool. That's gratifying. pretty cool, yeah. I have to tell you, we've talked a lot about Oxford, Mississippi. How many of you have been to Oxford, Mississippi? If you haven't, you need to go. You need to go and enjoy it. It's one of the great, great towns in America. It's fun for 24 hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't true. plan a week there, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Don't plan a week there. Great restaurants, a great bookstore. Go to Faulkner's Place and, yeah. uh, and maybe catch a football game if you yeah, you're lucky. Good football, it's a football game. game. Those of you who are used to University of Miami games, it's much more polite. In, uh, <laughs> in I, you know, when I went to Richard, took me to University of Mississippi game. Yeah, yeah. And and people came in ties, and it was a little bit unusual for me coming from Miami. Yeah. It's a rougher crowd here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Um, who are you reading now? What? Who are some of the writers that that you see out there? You know, I read so much. I, I start so many books. I rarely finish one. Um, <laughs> a lot of nonfiction you don't want to talk about. A lot of uh, nonfiction that has to do with criminal justice and you know things. I'm stuff I should know. Um, we just finished um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I was reading Tom Lake by Ann Patchett, and Renee was listening to it because Meryl Streep right. did the audio. And she was raving over the audio, which I, I need to go back and listen to. We both, both finished about the same time. We both thoroughly enjoyed that book. Um, Ron Rash has a new book out, The Caretaker, which is really good. Yeah. Uh, finished a book, um, just started Holly by Stephen King uh, yesterday. Uh, we sent each other's books back and forth. I can't read, nobody can physically read all of Stephen's books because there's so many of them, <laughs> and they're so thick, and he uses too many words, and I've told him that. <laughs> what else have we been reading lately? Uh, I read a great book, uh, The Escape Artist, a true story about the first uh, person to escape from Auschwitz wow. during the war to get out and tell people what was really going on because oh no, the world did not know at that time, oh. in 1942, what the Nazis were really doing. Right, right. They were like relocation camps or whatever. They were instant death camps for a lot of people. And he, he, was, he was an escape artist. And it was just a great story. I read mm. that one. Um, I love um, uh, the books of Ben McIntyre, the nonfiction books, Rogue Heroes, yeah. and, and, and several, uh, a, a, a Spy Among Friends. 
uh, we binged out on Slow Horses, oh, uh, which is a great TV series. Yeah, Nick, Mick, Heron's Mick, the, Mick Heron's the writer, really good writer. Uh, read most of his books. So I'm kind of all over the, all yeah. over the map. Recommendations from John <laughs> Grisham. Huh? I hope we have all of them in stock. <laughs> I really am hoping. <laughs> Guys, would you check? I'm please? sure. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, talk, you know, one of the things I found really interesting, and it took me a little by surprise, but I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't have been surprised by it from your other books. But you have a real obsession with food, too, right? I mean, you know, Abby in this book is uh, a cookbook publisher, right? Talk about that. Oh, yeah. She's an Italian. Uh, when Mitch and Abby disappeared from the firm, unlike the movie, uh, they got on a sailboat and barely got away from the bad guys. I mean, the, the, they almost hear the bullets, okay? That was that close. Uh, in the movie, they packed up their stuff in a U-Haul and drove out of town. Right. Uh, I like my ending much better. Uh, <laughs> But the movie was was pretty great too. But they uh, they had a bunch of money, uh, ill-gotten gains, and they disappeared for a while. They spent three years in Italy in a small town, and they uh, picked up the culture, language, food. That's where their background with Italian food. So she's a she's kind of a specialist in a uh, a cookbook uh, publishing company in New York. Um, several years ago. I was, most of my books take place like in Mississippi or D.C. or, you know, places we all know. I had a novel called The Broker that could be set anywhere in the world. One of the few times I've done that, just the way the story was. And, I, and we, we'd been traveling a lot to Italy and had seen a lot, of, a lot of it, but missed a lot of it. So I threw a dart at the map of Italy and it landed on Bologna. <laughs> and I'd never been, and so I started reading about it. I said, okay, I'm going to go to Bologna. And I went to Bologna. And uh, my driver escort was a former chef, it turned out, and he took me to all of his restaurants in town. I gained like 15 pounds in two <laughs> weeks. And it was lunch, dinner, I, just, we, I gorged on this great food, and I, and I put it in the, the book. So that book came out. While I was there, I discovered, much to my surprise, American football in Italy. Mm. There's a real league, been there for a long time. Wow. And I went, to a, I went to a practice, and I went to a game, and so it inspired the story, Playing for Pizza, which is one of my favorite books. Because there's no lawyers. It's all about football and food. It's set in Parma, which is an hour away from Bologna. This is the, this, the Emilia Romagna, Romagna area of Italy, which is a serious food country. The whole country is. But that's where a lot of the food comes from. So I, 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 people have told me they read Playing for Pizza and just their mouth was watering. And hey, I, even in this book, with all the kids going to pizza parties <laughs> after every baseball game they have uh, pizza i was getting hungry yeah through this whole thing i have to tell you that um <clears throat> you know would you do you think you'd ever consider bringing any of the other characters back like or, you know a sequel to the pelican brief or the client or i think the like pelican that? brief is over we talked about uh the client reggie love is still in memphis in her little office you know taking small cases susan sarandon um, that's, that's a possibility. Uh, don't have the story yet. Again, with the firm, like every one of them, there has to be a story. You, I've got to be, I've got to hear a story somewhere. And it, it, there's stories I steal. I mean, writers are thieves. All we do, we steal, we steal stories, we steal scenes, episodes, names, uh, dialogue. You'll hear something that's so good, you got to write it down. And you can't wait to use it. And that's, that's what writers are always doing. They're always 
stealing what they hear <laughs> or what they read. And, and so, I, you know, I'm not smart enough. <laughs> One of the worst questions I get is, where do you get your ideas? Like, you have to go somewhere and get your ideas. <laughs> the idea store, right? You're, you're not smart enough to create your own ideas, so you have to go somewhere and find them, okay? But I hear that question. It's an innocent question. It's the one question writers hate. Where do you get your ideas? I'm, I'm too dumb to get my... But anyway, so yeah, but I have to wait until I get the idea. And, and truthfully, when I spend my world, my time in, in the law, I was a lawyer for 10 years, and I'm still fascinated by the law. I, I believe in the law for the most part. But I, I love watching, not watching, but reading about lawyers, law firms, trials, courts, appeals, trends in litigation, uh, mass tort scams, all that law firms that blow up and they all sue each other. I, the stuff like that just really fires me up. And so when you, and I tell people, when you, when you watch lawyers as much as I do, the material is endless. There's so much good material, so many good stories, and lawyers as a, as a whole are really good storytellers because they see so much misery. And now they're terrible writers, well, most of them are, uh, because they want to impress you with how much they know. And that, that's, and I, I don't do that. I keep my research very light. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, so I'm always, always on, you know, looking for the next story, but until I can use another character I've already used, I've got to have a story. Um, I've done it twice with a book called The Whistler, and then the judge's list, that character was, uh, she, she was good for two books. Uh, she's probably gone. Um, what's her name? <laughs> what's her name? Lacey. Lacey. Lacey Stoll. Sorry. Sorry, I've written several books since then. Um, that's about, that's probably it. Um, you, you're going down the list over there. It's, it's, awful. it's just way no, too no, long. I'm just looking at it. I'm looking at all the ones like the third third Camino comes out in next June or May or June, and that's uh that's probably the last one from Camino. Now, I I've really those, I've really enjoyed Camino the Camino series so because I love those. it's you know it's Florida and it's yeah. uh, warts and all and it's um it's a lot of. It's a I lot mean, of when I think of all the topics that you've covered, that's what I was looking at. I mean, I loved your basketball book, Suli. You know that that was a wonderful book. Thank I you. Thought. And, the other, the inspired by a real story, inspired yeah. by a real basketball team that came over from Sudan and 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 played well. Uh, inspired by the uh, perhaps the saddest story in all of sports, the Lenny Bias yeah. uh, story from he was Michael Jordan's equal in the ACC and first round draft pick and all this great stuff. And I never saw him play. I saw him play on television. Uh, and he was drafted by the Celtics one day and OD and the next. Died. And he was yeah. not a bad. He was not a drug user. No, no, uh, it made, was made a mistake. Devastating, and it it it, it kept the Celtics yeah. Yeah. from moving forward. From so I stole years. that story. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're a good thief of stories. <laughs> you're a story thief, which is great, as well as a great storyteller. I think we can go to questions that you guys might have, and I'll I'll moderate it, and I'll try to keep it so that we don't go on forever, <laughs> because I know that we could. So you'll bear with me if I cut it off at some point. And I saw the most excited person raise her hand. The woman in pink right over here. The question is a book about family law? You mean like, like terrible divorces and things like that? Yeah, uh, no. Uh, when, when, I, when I was a young lawyer, I mean, every lawyer in town did, did divorces because you had to. And, and I just never could, I never could do it. I, I would file un, no-fault divorces 
if the people were truly going to sign everything and not go fight in court. Uh, but I saw all my friends get bogged down these horrible divorce cases and didn't get paid a lot of money for all the time they put. So I, I didn't. I never wanted to do family law. The question is about the film. Which one should be made, and how, how how do I decide which ones? I don't really decide which ones are made in the movies. Uh, there, there, there are two phases here. The first phase was 30 years ago, and we had that great run of uh, the first four or five movies that came out real fast, and had a huge impact on everything that's followed because the movies were popular. They had big cast, big directors, big box office grosses domestic and foreign, and, you know, they really kind of put me on the map. Um, and I thought and I thought it was going to be easy. Everybody made money off the movies, and everybody was happy and all that. And I thought, this, this might go on forever, and it didn't. Um, after five or six movies, seven, I guess, um, things changed. Uh, and we, I have not had a feature film made in 15 years. Skipping Christmas was the last one about 15 years ago. And it's not because we're not trying. Uh, I would love to see all of them filmed because we love a good movie. We love a good TV series. Uh, they also sell books, and it's, it's great for the, you know, it's great for the, should I say brand name? Uh, but no, it's just, just my point of view. I, I love to watch them make the movies. But I, I haven't, I didn't, I didn't pick which movies would get made and which movies wouldn't. Uh, that's not my job. Somebody else will decide that. Like The Exchange, we're secretly hoping Tom Cruise wants to do it. I have no control over that. You know, I, I can't send Tom Cruise a letter and say, hey, buddy, remember me? Uh, <laughs> doesn't happen that way. Uh, you know, that was 30 years ago. He was, we, we, were, we were cordial for a few minutes. We met each other, but no, no contact. He's since. probably thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's as, far, as far as which ones I would love to see film, <coughs> I think... Uh, the one I would love to see film is playing for pizza because I love the story. I, I, I saw it in, in, live in, in, in color when I was over there. It'd be a fun movie. Most of them would make good films. Some would not, and I, I think I know which ones would not. Uh, I'm not saying they should all be adapted, but they're all on the market. And right now we have four or five deals for uh, a feature film or a TV series or whatever, that you know, different types of deals. Uh, but we've had those for years. The, the options expire. I get the rights back, and nothing happens. Nothing is going to be filmed this year. I can't see anything being filmed next year. The strike didn't help. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually beyond the frustration of it. I don't worry about it anymore. I just, I've thrown things around the house so often. <laughs> Renee said, let it go. You can't control it. If you can't control it, let it go. And I'm not going to get involved in how they do it. So cross, you know, cross our fingers, hope for the best. I do think there will be some movies and TV shows in the future. I got nothing to do with it. My advice to young lawyers to share my, my we'll share your who we'll share, share my, your vision. My vision for justice and um, oh boy, um, tough question. The only um, the only really happy lawyers I know are public interest lawyers who lawyers who don't worry about the clock. Uh, they, they, they work for a foundation for a cause they believe in, and there are thousands of them, and there's always a ton of legal work to do. And again, they're not worried about making partner if they're big firm types. If they're small firm types, they're not worried about meet, meeting the overhead, making the overhead. They're not worried about that. They, they're, they're, they don't make 
probably as much money as some lawyers, but those are the happiest lawyers I've met in the last 40 years, the public interest lawyers. It was, uh, it was a pivotal moment that happened in about uh, 30 seconds. <laughs> we got the phone call on a Sunday morning in January of 1990. There was no book deal for the firm. It had been in New York for six months, passed around, nobody showed any interest. And somehow a bootleg copy uh, showed up in Hollywood. Uh, we didn't know about it. A guy got it in Hollywood and made 25 copies and sent it to all the uh, studios and production companies. And he got kind of nervous when they started calling back. And they called back, and so they started having these uh, negotiations. We didn't know anything about it. And uh, again, there was no interest in the book. And finally, at the last minute, my agent in New York, somebody said, has anybody talked to Grisham? Uh, and so and so it was a Sunday morning in January and I called my agent and he said um, he's very brusque uh, tough New Yorker he said uh, I need your I need your uh, approval authority to take the highest offer from Disney Universal or Paramount Pictures for the film rights to the firm I said, what about the book rights? We haven't sold the book yet. <laughs> and he said, I can't talk right now. These studios are sitting by the phones for the final round of bidding. And the word bidding had a real nice tone to it. You know? <laughs> and I hung up. I said, okay, you. No, I said, I said, I said okay, uh, just for fun, um, how much money are we talking about? He said, uh, I'm asking half a million, and I want to get 400000 And I said, you want my authority to go do that? <laughs> I said, you have it. And so hung up. And I looked at Renee, and we're going, you got to be, we, this has got to be a prank. And uh, we went to church, came home, the phone was ringing, and it was my agent. He said, uh, we just sold the film rights to Paramount Pictures. And he went through all this, this long uh, narrative about how he, negotiated and ran over everybody and showed the Hollywood types how you really do things, blah, blah, blah. And I said, that's, that's great. I said, um, just for fun, uh, how much money do we get? He said, $600,000. And I said, I thought you were hoping to get a half a million. I said, how'd you do that? He said, I'm just a hell of an agent. <laughs> I said, amen, brother, amen. <laughs> and we, I put the phone down, and Renee and I come from uh, the same type of very close-knit Southern Baptist families in the Deep South where you never discuss money outside the family. There's no money inside the family, but <laughs> you just don't talk money. It's, 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 it's taboo. You don't do it. And so we were, we were due at my mother's house across the backyard for Sunday dinner, Sunday lunch, and we said, okay, look. We're going to tell people we sold the film rights, but we are never going to tell about talking about the money because this is a game changer, okay? And so we did. We, we told, went that day, and people knew. We told our families, and it was all a big deal. First thing Monday morning, uh, Paramount issued a press release. <laughs> <laughs> and everything changed. And uh, 
that was about the moment we said, hey, you know, I'm tired of being a lawyer. Huh? <laughs> I'm tired of serving in the state legislature. Uh, let's try a new career. So it happened just that fast. Yeah. Never look back. I'm going to ask you this question just out of the book. It just came to me. Is you know, So many writers are now um, uh, bringing lawsuits and attacking the whole AI stuff and what's going on. Is that something that you've been concerned with, what's going on with Yeah, AI? we filed suit um, uh, about a month ago against uh, OpenAI. Um, me and Baldacci and right. Scott Turow and Jonathan Franzen and George R. Martin because and Jody they've, they've been taking your books and... We allege, yeah. we have not proven, the lawsuit alleges that they've just done whole-scale uh, copyright violation by taking... Mm -hmm. The Authors Guild is, is handling the lawsuit. We're all members of our union. We're all members of the Guild. The, the Guild put the lawsuit together, and it's the first of many, probably, uh, because that's what they've done. They just absolutely ignored the copyright. And they're getting all the stuff in the public domain, the stuff that's open and out there and free for everybody. But when you start taking stuff that's copyrighted, yeah. uh, it, it's a very serious matter, and we think they've done that, and we've, we've uh, filed suit, and it'll be a, you know, a long, hard fight. But it's, a, it's a big problem. I mean, yeah. there are kids out there who are going to AI, you know, ChatGBT, and going, I want to do my bar mitzvah speech in the style of John Grisham. <laughs> and you Good luck with that. I mean, we've... Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying... I mean, that's what we're protecting against, I think. <laughs> Didn't we, we've been to one bar mitzvah, hadn't we? In Charlottesville, yeah. In Mississippi, we didn't know any Jewish people, but there are they're, they're few in Charlottesville. Can you tell that I'm in awe of this guy? I mean, he's, he's pretty amazing, really, really amazing. And I can't thank you enough for coming down. And you've been tremendous. And all of you, I also want to acknowledge, and I'm sure you do too, because... You've been so loyal to your publishers over the years, after the, with the very first one, that we have John's publishers with us here as well, Suzanne Hers and Todd Dougherty as well. And while I'm introducing people too, I, I hope I'm not embarrassing her, but, but Sally Mann is with us as well, someone that I'm, I'm a huge fan of her work. She's a writer and a photographer, and I know that you all know her work as well. You just travel with such a great entourage as well. <laughs> In any case, John, I thank you so, so very much. And the other thing that I want to I do as a, a little books and books thing before we end is what, what many of you don't know is that John and I are born on the exact same day. We're the exact same age. And when we found that out, you know, I'll text him on our birthday, and I'll go, happy birthday, John, and he'll go, happy birthday, Mitch, and I'll go, he'll go, what are you doing on your birthday? I said, well, I'm going to dinner with my wife and kids, and I'll go, John, what are you doing? Well, I'm taking a group of friends to go see Springsteen. <laughs> and I go, all right, well, you know, that's, that's where our lives diverge <laughs> at that point. But, because I know what kind of a music fan he is, you may have this already, but I wanted to give this to you as a gift. It's that wonderful book that Obama did with Springsteen. Do you have that already? You don't? All right, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. It's called Born in the USA, Renegades, signed by both of them, in fact. It's signed by both of them, so thank you, John. And 
And also, because I know what kind of a social justice warrior is, you know, we've been doing a lot with book banning here. And you know, we're, we're, at the, we're, at the, we're at the center of it all. And one of the things we did is we formed this thing we're calling the Freedom Coalition, right? So I wanted to present John with one of these t-shirts. It's uh, Freedom, so that you can have that. And I just want to thank you again, my friend, for being here. Let's give him a gigantic hand. <laughs>